morning once again. I uh, don't know that I mentioned earlier, I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. Whether this is your church home or you're our guest this morning, uh, whether you're here or whether you're watching online, we are glad you've joined us. There is a lot of joy in being part of the North Suburban Church family. Uh, at the same time, though, we know we're not the beginning and end of God's work on the North Shore, and so that's why you'll notice that we do take time on these Sunday mornings to pray for other local churches. In our minds, those aren't our competitors out there. Right? Those are partners in reaching our area with the good news of Jesus. And so a moment ago, we prayed for the North Shore Chinese Christian Church. They are reaching people that we're unlikely to reach. And so the way we see it, when they thrive, we thrive. So... Thanks for joining us and praying for those kingdom wins. Let's turn now to the word. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. A few years ago, some of you might remember, Pastor Craig kicked off one of his sermons with this video. I'm not going to show the video, but this is a few screenshots from it. Do you remember that? Uh, it's this video that many of you have probably seen of people, what you're supposed to do is focus on people passing the ball around and see if you can count how many passes happen in the video. But in the middle of the video, somebody walks through in a gorilla costume and 50% and afterwards, hey, did you notice anything? And 50% of people who watched the video did not see the gorilla because you're so intently watching the ball that's being passed, right? It's selective attention. The premise is that we're more focused on one thing we can totally miss something else that's outside the framework of our expectations. Our researchers recently rebooted this experiment uh, on radiologists, using radiologists. So here's how it, how it worked. Uh, these are experts in reading scans. They've spent a lot of years in school to do this. They're really good at it. But the researchers inserted pictures. You're not going to be able to see it probably here. Maybe even those at home might be able to see it a little easier. They inserted pictures of a gorilla into a pack of CT scans on lungs. Uh, the radiologists were told, they were told, hey, find the nodules in all the scans. But if you can see right here, this is a gorilla right here. It's this big. It's 48 times the size of one of the nodules that they're looking for. Um, and so the radiologists, they did a pretty good job finding the nodules, but 20 out of the 24 of them completely missed the gorilla. Uh, like they were asked at the end, did the trial seem any different than any other trials? Did you notice anything unusual on the final trial? And finally, did you see a gorilla on the final trial? 20 out of the 24 said no. And at the end of the whole thing, though, when the researchers pulled it back up and they said, hey, do you see a gorilla on this scan? All 24 were like, oh, yeah, there it is. Uh, so it wasn't a visibility issue. In fact, the eye scans that they took during the experiment showed the participants' eyes were directly on the gorillas in many cases. Yet... They didn't have the ability to see what was plainly there in front of them. And as a result, they were in the dark, you could say, regarding something very out of place, even though it was 48 times the size of what they were actually looking for. Here's a question for us. What if, like radiologists pointing out lung nodules, you and I are seeing what we've been trained to see, but like those same radiologists missing giant gorillas, you and I are blind to bigger things of more ultimate importance. That was the case for some in our story today, who saw what they'd trained themselves to see, but they were totally blind to more important matters. Would you turn with me to John 9? 
John chapter 9 is where we are. You've got Bibles in the chair backs. It'll be especially important today to follow along with because we won't be able to read or hit on every verse of this longer passage. John 9 is where we're picking up for our latest installment in our fall series we've called The One and Only Son, Signs and Sayings of Jesus in John's Gospel. We're encountering different aspects week after week of who Jesus is through the miracles he worked, we call those signs, and through metaphors that he used to describe himself. Last week in John 8, we saw Jesus said he was the light of the world. And we did some theoretical or theological exploring of what that might actually mean for actual people like you and me, that Jesus is the light of the world. But this week, his being the light of the world is made concrete through a miracle he does, a sign. So today we see, okay, well, this is what happens when the light of the world shines. Because as always with Jesus, the miracle, the sign is always about more than just the miracle itself. So it's a long passage. We'll have to take it piecemeal and kind of move our way through quickly. But we're going to see a remarkable healing, a formal investigation, and a spiritual explanation. Remarkable healing, formal investigation, spiritual explanation. First, the remarkable healing, verses 1 through 12. What happens here in these 12 verses is truly astounding, even for people who were already familiar with Jesus' power. And it's astounding on several levels. Follow along with me, verses 1 through 12 of John chapter 9. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. Let me rapid fire cover a few observations here quickly. This guy is blind, verse 1, which at the time meant he was probably begging near the temple when Jesus and the disciples stopped to interact with him. But he's not just blind, he's blind from birth. And while Jewish people in Jesus' day would have been familiar with a few reports of faith healers restoring the sight of blind people, there is no evidence at all for any claim that someone had ever healed a person born blind. That's the point that's going to be made later in verse 32. This is a different category. No known power had ever been able to overcome congenital blindness. But Jesus notices this man. And the disciples notice Jesus noticing him, which gets their wheels turning about a theological question that they've had regarding the relationship between sin and illness or disease, right? disability. Take a look at verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in the most general sense, the Bible traces all disability and illness back to sin, 
In other words, if, if Adam and Eve don't sin in the first place, then there's no illness, no brokenness in the world. Right? But the connection can be sometimes taken further. In some cases, the Bible can draw a more specific line from specific sin to specific ailment. That's why I remember what Jesus told the man he healed back in chapter 5. He said, see, you're well. Don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. So there is such a thing as a particular illness that's a judgment for a particular sin. But the disciples' assumption is that such a line can be drawn from every illness to a particular sin. That that's what all illness is, such that if someone has a disability, it must be God's punishment for sin. That's the premise underlying their question in verse 2. What does Jesus think about this? Before we go to his answer, uh, listen, this may seem like an irrelevant question today for our modern, enlightened minds. But if you think it's not relevant, talk to somebody who has had a child born with congenital disabilities. Right? At first... It's not unusual to wrestle with questions like, wait, did we do something to deserve this? Is this God's judgment on us in some way? What's Jesus say? Jesus says, no, that's not always the case. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. There's another category for disability, according to Jesus, namely that God would allow someone to be born with a disability in order to display God's own works in a particular way through that person's life. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, names and faces come to my mind immediately of people with disabilities whom God has used mightily in my life. And some of, some of you are right here in this room, right? Hear this. God's glory has been put on display through you, not in spite of your disability, but through your disability, friends. This guy in John 8, John 9 is no different. And the particular way God's going to get glory through his disability is through Jesus, the Son of Man, publicly healing him, thereby demonstrating what Jesus has been meaning when he said he's the light of the world. See how Jesus explicitly makes that connection between blindness and darkness? His night's coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. If Jesus is the light of the world, as he claimed to be in the passage we looked at just last week, then we should expect to see some who were walking in darkness finding the light switched on, so to speak. And who's more in darkness than the person blind from birth? Not only is darkness this whole man's existence, at the moment he meets Jesus, his whole existence has only ever been darkness. He doesn't even have a category for anything else. If Jesus can switch the lights on for someone in that darkness then can any of our darkness be too dark for him to illuminate? In verse 6, Jesus gets to work. Uh, there's no formula for Jesus' healings. The technique seems to be a little different every time, probably in part because he knows we'd try to imitate his technique. This time, Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, and rubs it on the blind man's eyes before telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam to be healed, to finish the job. Why this? Why do it this way? Maybe there's some sort of symbolic reenacting of the original creation when God made humanity out of the dirt. Uh, it's hard to say for sure. What we can say is, I don't know about you, I guess I, I should speak for myself, but it would take a lot of trust, or at least a lot of desperation, for me to let somebody 
make mud out of their spit and rub my eyes with it. Right? I don't know if you saw a pastor in Oklahoma recently, a few months ago, dramatized this on a Sunday morning by literally spitting on his hand like a huge, like, then calling up a volunteer from the congregation and just like rubbing it in the dude's eyes. Uh, I won't attempt such a reenactment this morning, but just imagine what would be going through your mind as Jesus starts to do this, right? To you. Yet, to his credit, the man follows through. Jesus said it, so he's going to do it. He goes to the pool of Siloam. He washes, and he comes up seeing. Right? Comes up seeing for the first time ever. You can imagine what he must have been doing and saying, right? He's like, this is crazy. I can see. Sometime this week, search social media for uh, kid gets first pair of glasses, something like that. You'll, you'll see video after video. Some of my favorite videos to watch, these little babies, you've seen these, who are like severely nearsighted or farsighted, never really seen mom and dad, but then you put these glasses on them for the first time, and the way their faces just instantly light up with this joy that's just like incalculable, overwhelming, it brings tears to your eyes, right? But now imagine that not only have you never seen clearly, you've never even seen the faintest glimmer of light. This guy's never seen a, a bit of light. Right? Until, and then now it all just comes flooding in, live and living color. This man must have been fired up. And so, of course, people take notice, and they have a hard time believing it. For some of them, it's easier to believe that this is a lookalike than to believe that the blind dude can suddenly see. All throughout their debating, though, this guy's like, oh, no, I'm the one. It's me. Right? Uh, so now they want to know the story. This is crazy. Let's figure out who did this and how he could have pulled this off. Right? Okay, so we're going to be better equipped to unpack the spiritual significance of this in the verses that follow, but there's one implication of this that's best addressed maybe right here. Namely, that once Jesus gets hold of our lives, the transformation might be hard for some people to believe. With the sort of radical works he does inside of us, our friends might say, no, 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 that can't be him. I know him, right? I've known him for years. Nobody changes that drastically. Come on, right? Some of you have that story. And you know God didn't just transform you for your sake. He transformed you for the sake also of those around you so you can show them who he is. So question, are you ready to tell them what he did for you? Well, this blind man's neighbors are dying to know how this could be, so they go to their local religious leaders. There's no indication in that that they're trying to set Jesus up or frame Jesus, get Jesus in any kind of trouble. They're just, the Pharisees are religious experts, so they're the ones that people would naturally reach out to for comment after a notable event like this. And so as a result, we get a formal investigation. Part two, verses 13 to 34, formal investigation. This is a three-part investigation, actually. Please do read through it while I'm explaining because I won't be able to read through it all. In the first part, the neighbors bring the healed man to the Pharisees. Like, check this out, Pharisees, this is amazing. Help us understand, what are we supposed to think about a miracle like this happening right in our midst? But the Pharisees are not in a celebratory mood about this. And verse 14 gives us a clue why. It's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. There are at least three rabbinical Sabbath rules that may have been broken here. These are outside the Bible, to be clear. 
ways rabbis explain the command not to do work on the Sabbath day. So according to the rabbis, uh, some of this is we only have from later than Jesus, so it may have been in place when Jesus was around, maybe not yet, but possibilities. You're not supposed to heal when life's not in danger on the Sabbath. If life's not in danger, wait till after the Sabbath to heal. That was a rabbinical tradition, law. No kneading, K-N-E-A-D, kneading on the Sabbath. And no anointing of eyes. Those are in the literature outside the Bible as things that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. And Jesus maybe does all three of those here. So for at least some Pharisees present, his healing work constituted work. And as such, he has broken the Sabbath because work is banned on the Sabbath. So Jesus is wrong and sinful, period, to some of the Pharisees. At first, though, there seems to be another group of Pharisees who disagree, or at least they have questions. They're more open-minded. Like, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got a problem on the Sabbath issue here, but would God really allow somebody to do a miracle like this if he was blatantly sinning against God? So the two groups, they start bickering about it. Verse 16, there's a division among them. Uh, they can't come to consensus, so they turn and ask the healed man his opinion. He says he's a prophet. Uh, apparently that doesn't do anything to solve the disagreement in the room, so the Pharisees launch part two of their investigation, which is to bring the parents in. Who better to tell us if this man's lying or not than his parents? Let's track them down. So verses 18 to 23, that's what happens. Mom, Dad, was your son really born blind? Yes. Okay, so then how does he see now? And at this point, Mom and Dad are like, whoa, we don't want any part of this. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Fair enough, right? Maybe they're empowering their son to use his voice. But then we read their actual motivation in verses 22 and 23. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. See, they're scared that if they repeat their son's assessment of the man who healed him, that might get them kicked out of the synagogue. Right? And you don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. Everything revolved around the synagogue. So if you're banned from the synagogue, it'd be the end of your social life, end of your participation in life in the community. They don't want any part of that. So they kind of throw their son to the wolves. Hey, he's of age. Ask him. And the Pharisees do just that, which we might call part three of the investigation, to bring the healed man back in for another round of the same questions. Pharisees are very invested in finding any alternate explanation for this miracle. Because if Jesus really did what he seems to have done, that means something about Jesus that they don't want to accept. So look how they set it up this time. Give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. And I love the man's answer. Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. It might be a good one, by the way, for us to kind of file away. For when we're interacting with friends and neighbors who hit us with one of those complicated theological questions that kind of feel like a trap, we don't know the answer, right? We could always do worse than saying this, right? Saying, listen, I don't know the answer to your question. I'm not sure I know it, but one thing I do know, here's who I was before and here's who I am now. That's what I know. There's nothing left for the Pharisees to ask, so they just keep returning to the same questions. What did he do to you? 
How did he open your eyes? And now that the healed man is starting to see through what's happening here, he's ready to give them a little sass, right? This is very different from the response of the healed man back in chapter 5. You might remember Pastor Craig preached on that one. He kind of backed down under intimidation after he was healed. This, is, this guy's different. He said, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Our man here in chapter 9 is growing in boldness. He's becoming more confident in his conviction as the conversation continues. Look how he continues after they give him a hard time. You're his disciples. We're Moses' disciples. Here's what he says. This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. This healed man comes out strong at this. Once the Pharisees heal that, hear that, addressed to who are supposed to be the religious experts, out of the mouth of this uneducated nobody, now they're done engaging with him. And their dismissal is dripping with irony. You were born entirely in sin, he replied. You're trying to teach us? You catch that? We're now full circle with how this chapter started, right? The whole thing started with the question of who sinned that this man was born blind. The Pharisees are now admitting that he was born blind, which, of course, means that Jesus did pull off something previously unheard of, yet they kick him out, which is what his parents are afraid would happen to them. Quick question. Are you ready to be kicked out of places where you presently belong because of your allegiance to Jesus. It's happening more and more. Christians facing exclusion from friend groups and job opportunities and promotions because of our faith. Our brothers and sisters around the world have been dealing with it forever. Uh, in fact, if you're Jewish, as, as several of you are, and you come to believe in Jesus, your belief in Jesus can get you almost totally kicked out of the Jewish community around town. Some of you have experienced that. Is that cost too high? Back to the text for one more observation in this section. If you notice, the main theme of this interrogation has been what everybody knows, so to speak. The word keeps popping up. Here's just a quick survey of it. You don't have to read through, but the word keeps popping up. We know, we don't know, we know, we don't know, we know. This is just a survey of the passage, how many times the word know pops up. And by the end, it's clear that the guy who actually knows most in this conversation is the guy who started out the conversation saying, confessing he didn't know much. Meanwhile, the experts who are claiming all along to know a lot don't actually know much at all, especially about Jesus. Speaking of what everybody knows about Jesus, look at how the blind man's, uh, previously blind man's understanding of Jesus grows throughout the story. He starts out by saying he's a prophet. And he says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I was blind and now I see. Then he says, hey, He's implying he's his disciple. You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. I believe, Lord. And he worshiped him by the end in verse 38. His understanding of who Jesus is grows and grows and grows throughout the story. But just because you exhibit faith and you're healed by Jesus doesn't mean your theology is all correct. right? So here's a question I had reading this. And we're just going to spend a three-minute aside on this, if it's okay, because I think there's an important implication for us. How do we assess the reasoning going on in all the competing theological claims in this passage? Okay. 
Like, they go back and forth in this passage, making theological claims. Are they all right? Or some of them right, some wrong? So, for example, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees say, this man isn't from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Is it true that Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath? And if it were true, would that mean he wasn't from God? But then what about the counterpoint later in verse 16? How can a sinful man perform such signs? Is it true that sinful people can't perform miracles? The healed man effectively sides with this second group down in verses 31 to 33 when he says what he says here. He says, we know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. And then in verse 33, if this man were from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. What I'm asking is, which of these arguments holds up under scrutiny, theologically speaking? And on close analysis, the healed man's theological reasoning is generally good, but actually has some cracks in it. Look at it again. Uh, here's basically the contours of the, the healed man's theological reasoning. How can a sinful man perform such signs? God wouldn't listen to him if he was a sinner. He wouldn't be able to do these things if he was in sin. That's often true. But what about Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus who turned their staffs into snakes? What about Old Testament and New Testament miracle workers who don't at all fear God? Those exist. So we might want to say to the healed man, hey, just because someone does miracles doesn't mean that they inherently have God's approval. The Old Testament actually warns against drawing that conclusion. If you make a note to look up Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, the whole point of that passage is, hey, just because somebody does a miracle in your midst, that doesn't mean I sent them. Be careful. In light of that, the Pharisees' opposition, as stated here in verse 16, is actually more theologically sound. It's more honoring of Deuteronomy 13 if their initial premise is true that Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath, right? They're saying if Jesus is in blatant sin, he's not from God. And what I'm saying is that if Jesus is in blatant sin, then they're actually right. Miracles or not, they shouldn't accept that somebody who flaunts the law is from God. But that's the problem, right? That their initial premise is off about Jesus not keeping the Sabbath, right? Making a bit of mud in your hands isn't violating the intention of the Sabbath ordinance in Scripture. That's a man-made rule added on to Torah. And besides, Jesus came as an agent of God to teach and embody the Sabbath's true purpose, which is to bring life, wholeness, healing. What is more honoring to the original purpose of the Sabbath than to bring sight to the blind? So here's how maybe we could summarize the theological debate going on here. I know some of you are like, I'm not interested in this. Others of you are very interested in it. Here's a summary. You don't need to write this down or anything. Just, just my piecing this together. The less capable theologian, that's the healed man, makes somewhat questionable theological arguments but nevertheless reaches the correct conclusion about Jesus. While the more capable theologians, the Pharisees, make pretty tight theological arguments but nevertheless reach the wrong conclusion about Jesus. What takeaway is there in that for us? Well, somebody might say, well, if this is true, we shouldn't waste our time with all this theology. Right? But that can't be the takeaway John's going for, right? He cares so much about theology. His gospel is jam-packed with dense theology. I think the better application is something like this. While we work on sharpening our theological reasoning, and we do because it's honoring to the Lord and he wants that, 
let's make sure we aren't building our theology on flawed assumptions like the Pharisees did here. Yes, let's sharpen and sharpen and sharpen. Let's do more theology, not less. That would have helped the Pharisees, right? But let's make sure we're not building it all on flawed assumptions like they were. Remember where it all went wrong for them, right? It went wrong with the initial flawed premise that Jesus was sinfully breaking the Sabbath. If, if they had been open to the idea that maybe they had been misreading Jesus from the start, right? Maybe he's not a Sabbath breaker. Maybe he's the Sabbath keeper. Maybe he's, uh, if they'd been more theologically astute regarding the Old Testament prophecies that Messiah would come bringing healing to the blind, if they'd been more in, to- in tune with God's Old Testament purpose for establishing the Sabbath and therefore more open to the idea that healing might not violate the Sabbath, then maybe they would have been more open to seeing Jesus for who he was. Friends, all throughout the history of Christianity, we see people give us these dizzyingly beautiful accounts of who God is, just unfolding the wonders of God, unfolding the scriptures in ways that were like, they're breathtaking. This is amazing. This has enriched my soul so much to read this. And then these people turn around and they purchase slaves or they espouse anti-Semitism, or they support execution for church members who are caught in sin. And we're like, what? How could you write all this, but then do this? Anybody ever had that thought or feeling or frustration, discouragement? It's because great theological reasoning isn't foolproof in shielding us from our flawed foundational assumptions. And those foundational assumptions can come from all sorts of places, right? But, but that calls for not less theology, but more, in my opinion. Right? We don't need shallower teaching to combat this. We need deeper teaching. We don't need less Bible, but more Bible. And we need it in conversation with a broader range of voices. Reading the Bible together who can show us our blind spots. Where our fundamental assumptions might be off, might be flawed. For example, to show us where our politics have inappropriately distorted our fundamental theology where our wealth and privilege have inappropriately distorted our theology, where our individualism here in the West has inappropriately distorted our theology, etc. If the Pharisees had been willing to receive this man's testimony, to at least consider it, then even though he was a nobody, if they would have been willing to take him seriously instead of writing him off, they could have been corrected regarding the error they had made back at step one, and they could have adjusted course. Instead, they discard this man. They discard him. And so what's going to happen to him now that he's been discarded? That's the final short section. Now that he's been cut off from community, the social life, take a peek at what Jesus does. When he hears the man's been kicked out of the synagogue, what's Jesus do? He seeks him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard they had thrown the man out. He found him. And then whatever initial empathizing Jesus may have done, whatever checking in regarding this man's feelings after the mistreatment he's experienced, all that's secondary to the one question that's most important in this moment. Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man would have understood from Jesus' language choice that this isn't a question Jesus is asking about intellectual belief, as if Jesus were asking, do you believe the Son of Man exists? No. The man would have heard this more like, do you trust in the Son of Man? To the man's credit, his answer is pretty close to perfect, I think. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? In other words, tell me who he is. I'll put my trust in him. If you're signing off on the Son of Man, Jesus, good enough for me. And of course, like Jesus did with the woman at the well back in chapter 4, 
Jesus says, well, it's me. I'm him. And the man worships. Now, to close it out, Jesus is going to interpret the whole chapter's worth of events so that we aren't left guessing how to understand it all. He says, not just to the healed man, but apparently in earshot of the Pharisees, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Pharisees can sense that they might be included in the subtext here, so they ask, are you calling us blind? Jesus could have just said yes, because that's effectively his answer, but he's going to give them more than just a yes. He says, well, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, if somebody's blind and they know they're blind, that's exactly the person Jesus came for. Jesus came to give that person sight. He wants to be the light that shines in their darkness such that they can see for the first time. Those who do not see will see. Verse 39. If you're blind, there's no sin in admitting your blindness. That's what Jesus wants. But if someone claims to see and therefore perceives no need for Jesus' light, that's the person who's in sin, according to Jesus. Now that you say we see, your sin remains. That's the one Jesus was talking about back in verse 39 when he says that those who do see will become blind. He knows he'll have that effect on some people, that even while his light is allowing some people to see clearly for the very first time, he knows that simultaneously other people will turn away from him, blinded by that same light. In short, his ministry is going to have the effect of separating people out. That's why I used the word judgment back in verse 39. There's going to be a sifting out, a separation that takes place. It has to as a result of what he's doing. He knows the people around him being sorted into two groups, those who were blind but now can see and those who denied their blindness and so become the most blind of all. And that sorting function, that's why judgment language. He can say in one breath, I didn't come to judge but to save. And then in the next breath, I came for judgment because... The world that Jesus entered was already under judgment. And so, as he does what he does, and he plucks people out of judgment, like he plucks this man out of judgment, to save them, this one, that one, this one, another one, those who reject his saving work, like these Pharisees in the story, they're inevitably sorting themselves out by rejecting his salvation. In that sorting sense, he is doing a work of judgment, even as he's ultimately just saving many from judgment. Our big idea today is this. After admitting our blindness, let's ask Jesus for sight. After admitting our blindness, let's ask Jesus for sight. Remember the radiologists who missed the giant gorillas 48 times the size of the nodules they're trained to look for? That's us, I think. If we can see what this world has trained us to see, namely, how to secure our financial future. We can see that pretty well. How to help our kids get into good colleges. We've got a good idea about how to do that. How to win friends and influence people, so to speak. We've been guided along that way. But all along, we're blind to things of ultimate importance. We don't see Jesus and his supremacy in our lives. We're born unable to see him for who he is. And in light of that, I suppose there may be three groups here this morning that map to three of the characters in the story. The first group 
and, and, and think through where you might fall in these three groups. The first group, maybe you're like the man who was healed. You recognize that you're blind naturally from birth, and you're calling out to Jesus for help. Help me see, Lord. I can see all the less important things. I can't see the most important things. Help me see. Second group, you're like the Pharisees. You're pretty confident, actually, that you see the world the right way on your own. Thanks for asking. Third group, you're like the healed man's parents. You're not sure whether you believe all this or not, but it's certainly not worth taking too seriously and risking the overturning of your life for. Note to each of those groups. First, to group one, if you recognize this morning you're blind and find yourself wanting to call out for help, I want to make sure you hear Jesus is offering you sight this very morning. Spiritual sight, permanently. And you can receive it just by talking to him like you'd talk to him if he were in the seat next to you. Tell him that you want to turn from the life you've lived in the darkness and that you want to come into the light. And if you trust that he died in your place and rose again from the dead to forgive your sins, you'll find your life being transformed starting today and then the next day and the next day being transformed by his spirit as you've come into the light. To group two, if you're pretty confident that you already kind of see the world the right way on your own, let me just ask, what if your fundamental premises aren't as solid as they seem? For example, your assumption, maybe, that all we can know is all science can prove. Have you ever thought about how that itself is an unproven hypothesis? Your assumption that all religions must be basically the same. What if they're not? Don't miss out on the light because you're so stubbornly narrow-minded in your suppositions. Are you willing to cross-examine yourself this morning? To group three, if you're like the man's parents, you're looking to avoid anything that could be costly. Just to be clear, there's a cost to not doing anything with this as well. Can't stay on the fence forever. In the end, everyone either comes to Christ asking for his light, or they don't, and they remain in the darkness. You can avoid being kicked out of the synagogue for a while, like this man's parents did, but eventually, your desire to escape short-term discomfort could leave you facing far worse long-term discomfort. Consider whether you believe that this Jesus is who he says he is. And if he is, the only proper response is to join this healed man in worshiping Jesus, whatever cost that may bring. Let's pray. Lord, I want to be that sort of person. We want to be that sort of church that worships you, whatever cost it may bring. It steps into the light even when it's scary to do so. Um, that allows you to bring your healing touch into our lives, even when it's uncomfortable and painful. God, we lift up those whom we love dearly, that we care about, who don't yet know you, who have, are still stumbling in the darkness, whether they realize it or not. We pray that uh, you'd work in their hearts and use some in this room to reach them such that they can experience the life that we've found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.